My name is Mike, but I'm not your speaker tonight. Uh, tonight we are very fortunate to have one of my favorite profs from Denver Seminary with us, Doug Groteis. The uh, philosophy professor at Denver Seminary has been showing up at Scum of the Earth on and off since 2001. Uh, and uh, there you go. See, I knew we could do it. Awesome. Then you can turn these obnoxious things off now. That'd be great. So. Oh. Perfect. All right. So, I just want you to know that we're able to sit under who I think is one of the preeminent Christian philosophers alive today. Uh, he has just completed his magnum opus. That means his great work. It's like almost 800 pages worth of Christian apologetics. It's due out sometime in the fall of this year. And uh, my feeling is that it's going to be one of those staples that people go back to for years and years and years to come. He'll reference that while he's talking. Uh, it's not available yet. When it is available, I highly recommend that you uh, buy it and keep it as a reference for all sorts of questions about the Christian faith. But tonight, because of our hot topics for the summer, I gave him a very difficult assignment, and this is his assignment for our hot topics. Why? Why? Do bad things happen to good people? And good things happen to bad people in this world. So, without further ado, let me introduce my friend and professor, Dr. Douglas Groteis. Good evening, everyone. The last time I was here, it was so hot, I had to take off my coat which I never do. It's nice and breezy this time. Let's begin with prayer, please. Holy Spirit, you are the spirit of truth. We ask that you would come and make truth known to us through the scripture. I ask that you administer to everyone here intellectually, spiritually, emotionally, situationally, that we would leave here with a deeper faith, greater knowledge, and a stronger hope in who you are as our Lord and Savior, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a very difficult, vexing topic. Why do good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people? And it's a topic that the Scripture is very familiar with. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says that the whole world is groaning together in travail, awaiting its redemption. And he goes on to say that the Holy Spirit groans inwardly with us as we groan, given the frustrations and difficulties and pain and suffering of this world. So the Bible is by no means Pollyanna or superficial on the question of suffering, cruelty, injustice, and so on. We live in a groaning world. Do you hear the groans? The groans come at us from every side. Let me give one example, that of chronic illness. This is a category of illness that many people don't really understand. It's not terminal. People don't die from it. But neither is it episodic. That is, it continues and continues. So we're talking about things like fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, and so on. People can look very healthy and feel utterly miserable and have to deal with the expectations of people 
who say, you look fine. Why don't you perk up? Why don't you buck up and deal with it? This is one of the sounds of groaning in the world. And with many of these people, many of whom I know, you would think, if these people only had more strength and energy and wherewithal, they could do so much in writing and teaching and leading and so on, yet so often they're homebound and the times when they get out of the house, it's to go to doctors and to go for various tests and so on. That's part of the groaning of this world. It doesn't seem fair. Why would this happen to these people? Or think of the example recently in Denver. A man was convicted in 2006 of having a slave in his home in Denver. This woman was from, get the facts right, let me just read this to you. Long after the Civil War supposedly abolished slavery in America, a Saudi Arabian man living in Denver was convicted for keeping an Indonesian woman in his home as a slave. She had been taken to the United States from Saudi Arabia when she was a teenager. In Denver, she was required to do manual labor in the home and sleep on a mattress in the basement. She was also sexually abused by the man. Moreover, slavery and human trafficking are on the rise nationally and globally. More people are enslaved today than at any other time in human history. These people are lured by hope. You can come to America. We will give you a passport. We will give you a loan. It's a scam. And this happens in various countries around the world. So we think of unfairness, injustice, ignorance, deception, wishing people well and seeing them perish or suffer. You might call that a benediction unrequited. So many of our hopes are dashed for physical health, for careers, for marriage, friendship. Our fears are sometimes realized and sometimes calamities beset us that we would have never imagined. Now, as I said, this is not alien to the scripture. Paul says the whole world groans and the Lord groans together with us in this struggle. Let me read you a few passages from Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 8.14. There's something else meaningless that, I, that occurs on earth. Righteous men who get what the wicked deserve and wicked men who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. Or in chapter 9, verse 11 of Ecclesiastes, and I read this from the King James because the literary force is so dramatic. I returned and I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and chance happeneth to them all. Now we'll hear again from Kohilath, the author of Ecclesiastes. He doesn't leave it at this, but you have to agree with him that life is often terribly, crushingly unfair. Now, how do we cope with this? as thinking people, and especially as Christians. This is historically called the problem of evil. How do we explain the existence of evil? Where did it come from? What is its meaning? What is the outcome of this world, which is such a strange mixture of good and evil? Now, there's a philosophical problem for Christian theism, which I will address in a moment. And there is also closely related to it the existential or psychological, sometimes called the pastoral problem of evil. 
The philosophical problem has to do with coming up with a coherent, cogent, true worldview that makes sense of evil. And the existential dimension is how do we live in this kind of a world with meaning and significance? How do we understand it and how do we live within it? They're really interrelated, but they can be separated. Now, I want to talk about the problem of evil or the problem of pain, which is, I underscore, a problem, a question, a haunting query for every worldview, whether it's Christianity, atheism, Eastern religions, or something else. But here's how the problem lays out for historic Christian orthodoxy. Christians claim the Bible teaches that God is all or perfectly good. God is not an underachiever when it comes to goodness. God has maximal goodness. Second, God is all-powerful or omnipotent. That is, nothing outside of the range of logical possibility is impossible for God. All right? Now, the reason I make that distinction is that we don't want to talk about nonsense things like, can God make 2 plus 2 equals 5? That makes no sense. That's not an actualizable state of affairs. So it's no limit on God that he can't violate mathematics. All right? But we think of God being able to do anything that's logically possible. So God is all good and God is all powerful. But thirdly, there is real evil in the world. Things that frustrate good human desires. We can break this into natural evils, things like tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, tsunamis, and so on. Or we can talk about moral evils, evils that are brought about by agents, by self-reflective beings that hurt other people. You think of things like adultery, rape, child abuse, theft, murder, unjust war, any number of things. Human evils. Now, the skeptic of Christianity here, or the thinking Christian, this is a problem really for all followers of, of Christ. This is not just for philosophers or eggheads. If God is all-powerful, then God could eliminate evil. He would have the ability to do so. If God is all-good, then God would have the desire to eliminate evil. Yet, there is evil, and a lot of it and a lot of it which seems gratuitous, that is, to serve no greater good. So the conclusion by the non-Christian is, therefore, either God is not all good, one, or two, God is not all powerful, or three, God does not exist at all. So the claim is you can't say that God exists as an all-good, all-powerful, all-powerful being, and there be as much evil as there is in the world. This is called the philosophical problem of evil. Now, the Bible itself does not shy away from the anguish and agony that people go through suffering in the face of God. The Psalms often are Psalms of lament. In fact, that genre contains more Psalms than any other genre of the Psalms. The psalmist may cry out, How long, O Lord, until you bring justice? I cry out to you all day, and you do not answer me. We see this in Psalm 22, 39, 88, 90, and many, many others. So we have believers in this God of a covenant, a God who reaches into history 
and reveals himself and makes himself known as an all-good and all-powerful being, and yet people seeing injustice, unfairness, people suffering and struggling say, God, why? How long will this go on? Now, how do we begin to try to solve this problem? It's really the problem of injustice. It seems that the evil are rewarded wrongly and the righteous suffer unjustly. How do we begin to answer this? This is a vexing question. This, for me, as a Christian philosopher who has followed Christ now for 35 years, is easily the most difficult question to raise, I think, in philosophy, and it's one of the most vexing problems for the Christian. However, I think there are ways of approaching it that give us knowledge and understanding. So let me lay this out for you. There is evidence for the existence of God, and by that I mean an all-good, all-powerful being, an agent. There's evidence for the existence of God from nature. I'm just going to review what takes up about 200 pages in my forthcoming book, all right? There's evidence for God from physics, astrophysics. There's good evidence that the universe began to exist a finite time ago and that it came into being out of nothing. And the best explanation for that is a cause, an agent outside of the universe that brought about the universe. The alternative is the pop goes the universe theory. Everything came into being without a cause. Now, how likely is that? How rational is that? And there are other arguments called cosmological arguments that focus on God as God qua creator of the universe and sustainer of the universe. These are philosophical scientific arguments that do not directly depend on the Bible but confirm what the Bible says. So we have arguments for the creation and a creator. We also have very profound arguments for God as designer at the macroscopic level of fine-tuning facts of physics that there are certain constants and proportions and laws that are finely tuned on a razor's edge to make conscious embodied life possible. There would have been a number, a vast number of other possibilities that would have not allowed for conscious embodied life. Can you explain this by chance, by natural law, by a combination of chance and natural law? No. It has all the markings of a mind that picked exactly all the right variables such that we could exist. That's at the largest possible universal level. Moreover, there's very profound evidence for a designer in the, in the area of biology. For instance, the informational nature of DNA and RNA and the molecular machines in the cell, like the bacterial flagellum and so on. And again, that's, that's two more chapters in my book. You can also argue for the existence of God in any number of other ways. You can say if there are moral truths, like torturing the innocent merely for fun is wrong, or love is better than hate, or no one should be a racist, or no one should rape someone else. What is the basis for that truth? Is it mere instinct? Is it social convention? Societies go radically wrong. Societies can become genocidal. Is it mere impulse? Is it some material state that we look at that tells us rape is always wrong, racism is always wrong? No. These are truths that are immaterial truths. They're not based on things in the universe. You can't just find, looking under a microscope or looking through a telescope, you shouldn't murder, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't rape. 
These are moral truths that are best explained on the basis of our designer and lawgiver, God, who knows the world through and through and has given us moral knowledge. Now, I'm just summarizing this argument. Moreover, we can argue for the existence of God through the experience people have had of God, having remarkable experiences that are best explained by God as the agent of that experience, the cause of that experience. Moreover, we talk about the reliability of the Scripture, the uniqueness of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, his credentials, his claims. So what I'm saying is this. When you get hit with the problem of evil, philosophically or existentially, don't try to deal with it as if there were no other evidence for God. That you've got this idea called Christianity and it makes all these claims. And there's no basis for any of these claims. And then there's evil all over the place, way too much of it, too many kinds of it, and that's the end of the story. No. When you talk about verifying or confirming a worldview, a large-scale hypothesis about reality, you have to look at all the evidence for and against that position. So we have a tremendous amount of constructive, positive evidence for there being a creator, designer, lawgiver, and so on, who has revealed himself in the scripture. I'm only really summarizing this, but this is crucially important. Now, despite all this evidence, the existence of evil or certain types of evil still poses as a possible refutation or defeater of Christian theism. Some say that no matter what the positive evidence looks like from what is called natural theology for the existence of God or from the uniqueness of the Bible or the claims and credentials of Christ, it's not good enough because evil in the world reveals a crack in the edifice of Christian theism that goes all the way to the foundation. So we as Christians need some kind of response to this. Now, part of the response is looking at how other worldviews, other accounts of existence deal with evil. Because you have a range of possibilities for explaining the existence of good and evil. They're not endless. There's a limited number of possible explanations. Let me give you two that are very attractive alternatives to Christian theism. I'll deal with this quickly, but I think I'll make some strong points against these views. The first is atheism. Put more constructively, this is called philosophical materialism. There is no God, there are no angels, there are no demons, there's no soul, there's no purpose to existence. Existence can be understood by what chemistry, biology, and physics tells us. That is, material and energetic factors and natural laws that are just there. Bertrand Russell, in a famous debate with Copleston 60 years ago or so, said, the universe is just there. It's just there. All right. So, you appreciated my Bertrand Russell uh, imitation, I realize that. Now, why would people be inclined to that position? There are a lot of reasons, but let me give you one. Supposedly, it dissolves the problem of evil. You don't have to worry about how an all-good, all-powerful God somehow allows or uses or structures in evil and remains all-good and all-powerful. You take out God and the problem vanishes. No more problem. That is philosophical problem of evil. But there are more problems created by the evacuation of God than are solved. 
Now, what does the atheist say when he gets leukemia or when he loses a daughter to a car accident? Shit happens. I can say that here, right? Scum of the earth. I tried to be polite this morning. I had it in my notes, excrement occurs. And people started booing, so I said, shit happens, and they applaud. But look, this, this is the point. Don't let the humor take away from the philosophical point, please. The point is this. Shit happens. There's no design. There's no creation. There's no moral lawgiver. There's no afterlife. There's no writing of the books in the end. Things just happen. Time and space and chance and natural law, things just happen. That's it. Now, according to atheism, philosophical materialism, there is really no basis for objective good and evil. You don't have a lawgiver. All you have is matter in motion, to oversimplify it. That's all you can appeal to. Or you might appeal to instinct. Or you might appeal to social convention. But that does not give you a sufficient basis to make strong moral claims. Yet, because atheists have a conscience, they still make strong moral claims, even though they can't support them according to their worldview. And if you don't believe me, look at the recent debate between William Lane Craig and uh, Harris, Sam Harris. The, the issue was, is God required for morality? And Bill Craig argued yes, Sam Harris argued no, and Sam Harris was thoroughly trounced in that debate. All you have on atheism is matter, instinct, and survival. You have no philosophical grounding for any deep, rich, meaningful sense of morality. Furthermore, you have no hope that good will win out over evil. And you have no moral motivation, really, that when you do good, when you submit to the good, when you sacrifice that you're going with the grain of the universe, that you're fitting in with a larger plan. Why? There isn't any. So on atheism, according to this worldview, you are literally good for nothing. Moreover, atheism is defeated by the arguments for a creator, the argument for a designer, various arguments for a designer, the moral argument, the religious experience argument, and others I have not had time to give you. So atheism really fails as an answer to explaining or living with evil in the world. That's a short version. What about another worldview that is very popular, probably more popular than atheism in the United States? That's the pers perspective of Eastern religions. Broadly here I mean Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism. That is, karma and reincarnation explain the moral states of affairs in the world. So we're not talking about a personal agent that set up the world and has it unfolding according to his own plan. We're talking rather about an impersonal process that assigns rewards and punishments according to behavior. All right? The idea is karma. Sometimes people use a biblical verse to try to justify it. You reap what you sow from lifetime to lifetime to lifetime. So you factor in here reincarnation. Now, Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism has, have different accounts of how this works. But the idea is that you have a universal mechanism for assigning rewards and punishments that goes from lifetime to lifetime. So if there's injustice in this life, it could be righted in the next life, or the next life, or the next life. Now, what can be said about this? There are quite a few logical problems with this view. 
First of all, this view means that there is no such thing as innocent suffering. So, if a two-year-old is killed, she deserved it because of bad karma in a previous lifetime. And if a woman is raped, she deserved it because of bad karma in a previous lifetime. And on and on we go. Now, that should strike you as counterintuitive. Don't we have examples of people that suffer innocently? Not that they're perfect moral beings, but they didn't deserve what happened to them, such as rape, child abuse, and so on. Well, on karma, there is no unjust suffering. Everyone gets what they deserve right now. That should strike us as an odd, strange result. Furthermore, when you look at the metaphysics of karma and reincarnation, you have a thoroughly impersonal process making moral judgments and assigning moral outcomes. That should strike you as philosophically strange as well. So you have this process, not a person, but a process of the law of karma. So actions and states of mind are assessed as to their moral worth, and then you are assigned a certain karmic outcome. All of this happens automatically without there being an evaluator or an administrator. Now, that should strike you as a very strange setup. You have law without a lawgiver, and you have punishments without anyone meeting out the punishment and rewards without anyone giving the rewards. There's really no one there to run the system. It's just part of the structure of existence. Moreover, on this view, the point is not to come back in a better form. The point is to leave the wheel of samsara, the wheel of suffering, entirely. So the goal, really, it, it, it takes different forms, but broadly speaking with Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism, the goal is to leave the space-time world behind forever. That is to get the hell out of here. Because there's no doctrine of creation. There's no doctrine of redemption in this world. The world is a kind of gigantic mistake that has to be fled by entering Satori or Nirvana, or something like that. There are other problems with this view that I won't go into. Now, there are other views also. We could talk about Islam. But having looked at this, I want to assure you that the problem of evil is a problem for every worldview. And not every worldview has a sufficient answer to this particular problem. I've given you atheism, karma, and reincarnation. They are inadequate in many ways. Let me try to sketch out for you in the time remaining the Christian explanation. I have to go very, very quickly. But I want to make some crucially important points on the philosophical problem and also the existential or psychological problem. The Christian view, unlike atheism, unlike the religions of the East, has a narrative, a worldview that has four basic acts or stages. First, creation. A good God created the world out of nothing for his sovereignly good purposes. The world is here for a reason, and it has meaning and significance and value given its origin in God. Neither atheism nor Eastern religions can claim that. Secondly, the world has gone very wrong because agents, angelic and human, have rebelled against their good creator. This is known as the fall. We see this laid out on the human scene in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So there's something wrong with the world because humans have morally turned against their good creator. 
So the world is groaning. The world is full of pain and struggle and difficulty. But the third dimension or the third stage is redemption. Since God invested in the world and said it was good, 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 very good in Genesis, he will not abandon the world, but he will continue to interact with it, to reveal himself through nature. Romans 1, Psalm 19, Acts 14, Acts 19, so on, Acts 17. He'll reveal himself by sending prophets into the world through the Jewish people. He reveals himself most distinctly through coming to earth in the Son, God the Son, taking on human nature at the incarnation. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. And ultimately, God will sort things out and right every wrong and either forgive those that have come to him by faith or judge those who have resisted him. And God will judge and purge the universe and will restore that which is submitted to him. We see that beautiful picture in Revelation 21 and 22. That's consummation. Now, I think it's a good question to ask. What basically is God's, if you will, mission? What does God want to accomplish through these four stages? Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. God's project is to make himself known in redemption and judgment in order to elicit worship and service. This is developed tremendously in a book by Chris Wright called The Mission of God. God makes himself known in order to be worshipped and to bring shalom, to bring flourishing, and to bring justice into the world. Now, we can't expect worship because we are finite, limited beings. But we're talking about the infinite, unlimited creator. So to know him is to know what is good and true and holy and what is right, what goes with the grain of the universe. Just a few examples of this. God's judgment on Egypt, through which he liberated his people, was so that Pharaoh and Egypt and God's own people would know. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, Exodus 6-7. He did it to reveal his character, his power, his goodness, his justice, his faithfulness. You see, God wants to be known. This is crucial in our culture. I could go on for hours about this, just ask any of my students. But we face in our culture a crisis of knowledge. There are many people that question whether or not you can know anything. Everything is up for grabs. Everything is constructed, deconstructed, reconstructed. Who really knows anything anyway? But if God is there and God is the God of the Scripture, then God is on a project to make himself known, to be worshipped, to be adored, to be obeyed, and to reinstitute shalom in his world. So somehow, bad things happening to good people and good things happening to bad people works towards this end of God making himself known. It's not reincarnation. It's not shit happens and there's no explanation for it. These evils are serving a greater good through the infinite wisdom of God. That is the biblical picture. But more about knowing God. Think of John 1.18. The Apostle John says, The Son came into the world to make the Father known. So, so, through Jesus Christ, through his life, his teaching, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, 
his session at the right hand of the Father. He is making the Father known. He is bringing out the heart of God into space-time history, indelibly, so that you can't forget it. And it's inscribed in Scripture, and we're taking it as best we can around the world. God wants to be known. So concerned is He that we know Him that He makes an appearance in His own world through Jesus Christ. Or think of the Great Commission. Make disciples, teaching them everything that I have taught you. So we are to bring the knowledge of God to our neighborhood and to the nations. Even amidst the suffering, the groaning, the struggle, bad things happening to good people, good things happening to bad people, somehow God is working this all together to make himself known as a holy, just, loving, and gracious God. Now, I have to remember a few things here. I said God uses evil for a greater good. And I mean a greater good that would not be accomplished otherwise. That is, God is not going to waste anything. Now, we'll come back to seemingly pointless evils in a moment. But I want to make clear to you that evil is not created by God directly. Evil is brought about by the creatures turning against God and thereby and therefore turning against each other. The evil that occurs in the world did not surprise God. It was part of his total plan for the universe. But God does not, let's say, create evil in the same way he created the heavens and the earth. Nevertheless, evil is used by God for good purposes, according to his infinite wisdom. And one verse that is very helpful at seeing this strategy is in Genesis 50, verse 20. I won't go through the whole story, but you know the story of Joseph and his brothers. Joseph's brothers envied and really hated their brother Joseph for his success and his ability. So they sold him into slavery. And it turns out that Joseph, although he goes to prison and suffers terribly, is blessed and ends up saving people through this whole experience. And so Joseph says to his brothers who had bad intentions, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So human beings' cruelty bitterness, bickering, envy, and so on, is not going to thwart the ultimate will of God. You could view this, in a sense, as dual causation. There's the causation of the agent saying, let's get even with Joseph, or let's hurt this people group, let's steal this from someone. That intention is sinful, it's wrong, it's violating God's moral commands. However, God is not taken by surprise by this, God is not going to be outsmarted by this, and somehow... He will take those things and use it for a greater good that could not be achieved otherwise. This is really the biblical view of the providence, the sovereignty, the goodness, the power of God. Now, let me give you the ultimate example of a bad thing happening to a good person. The worst of the world met the best human being who ever lived, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was perfectly righteous and holy, and truthful, and caring, and loving. He raised the dead. He healed the sick. He fulfilled biblical prophecies. He spoke truth to power without flinching, without compromising. Yet, he was put to death. He was executed on trumped-up charges. And the legal standards were violated. And people mocked him and spit upon him and crucified him, the most horrific means of torture and execution known in the ancient world. That was ultimate injustice. Yet through that, God 
revives and redeems the universe. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He who was without sin became a sin offering for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus triumphant from the dead, the kingdom of God takes on a new vivacity, a new power, a new salience, a new dimension of reality that it had never known previously. And we are, if we are followers of Christ, part of that. So the ultimate injustice happened to a perfect person, and God employed it for my salvation, your salvation, and for the purging and judgment and renovation of the cosmos. We should try to see the world through the prism of Christ. Christ is central. He is preeminent. Colossians 1 and 2 teaches that very clearly. He has all authority in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28. And at his name, one day, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, the knowledge of God will be in the end perfected. Some will confess him gloriously with praise and tears and hands and banners and dance. Jesus is Lord, and we even did that a little bit today. Others will say, Jesus is Lord in hell. But in the end, God's knowledge will completely cover every human being who has ever lived. People will know him either as Lord and Savior and worship him and praise him, or they will know him as their judge and receive eternal punishment. There is no other God that has wounds. When we look at the suffering in the world, it seems so difficult to understand. We have to remember that God took the worst possible suffering and used it for redemption. We try to understand, fathom, discern the world through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And we understand ourselves as part of that if we're followers of Christ. So given what the scripture tells us, given what we know about the work of Christ, we know, we can know if we attend to this, that evil will not have the last word, that God will triumph over evil and outsmart all the evildoers in the end and even make the wrath of human beings praise him in the end, serve his purposes in the end. But you might say, well, it's nice that we have the story of Joseph and his brothers. Happy ending. We know about Jesus dying, rising from the dead. But how do I explain the terrible suffering that I am now going through? Now think for a minute. I'm going to take just a moment for you to meditate on something. Think of the most perplexing, painful thing in your life right now. Something you do not understand and which causes you distress, profound distress. There may be multiple things, but just for a moment, just think about that. The psychological pain level just went up in this room. I'm sorry to do this to you, but there's a reason for it. Now ask yourself this question. Is there any particular verse in the Bible that gives you a perfect explanation why you are suffering this? No. My name, Doug Grothuis, is not written in the Bible. But there are statements in the Bible that relate to me as a follower of Christ. Let me give you one of these from 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. This is for all followers of Christ. 
See, what I'm trying to sketch out here is that we have the knowledge of God. That's his mission, to make himself known globally, eternally, all right? God makes himself known. But God also keeps some things secret for his own purposes, according to his infinite wisdom. But hear this scripture. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. This is for Christians now. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So Paul is looking at his suffering through the lens of Christ. Crucifixion, resurrection, second coming. And he says his sufferings are light. This man was nearly stoned to death. This man almost died in a shipwreck. This man was tortured. He was humiliated. He was called an idiot when he went to Athens. A bird brain. And he says, light and momentary afflictions. Because these afflictions, you have to get this. It's not, well, you have these afflictions and it's terrible, it's really ridiculous, but eventually you'll have a better life. What this text is saying is that these afflictions are part of the sovereign plan of God to glorify you. These afflictions are fashioning you into the being you will always be, always be in the future. So they are not accidental. They are not meaningless. They are not fortuitous. Now, I'm not saying that your suffering for Christ is the basis for your salvation. May it never be, as Paul would say. The basis of your salvation is what Christ has done, the finished work of Christ on your behalf. That's justification by faith alone. But there's also sanctification, becoming more Christ-like because you are a child of God, because you have been reconciled to God. And the sufferings that we experience are meaningful because of that, even if we do not know many times why we are suffering. When we seem to give so much to the Lord and we just have more and more and more trouble and heartache and difficulty. Or when we see people that don't love God seeming to go from strength to strength. We have to come back to Christ and try to see the world through that lens. Although my name and your name is not in the Bible, if you are a follower of Christ, your identity and your destiny is written about in the Bible. So I'll make this very personal for a minute. My wife suffers from a panoply of chronic illnesses. That's one reason why she's not here tonight. That's one reason why some people probably don't even think I'm married. Because when I go out in public, my wife is almost never with me. It's not because we don't like each other. It's because she's homebound. She very seldom gets out. Now, my wife and I have anguished over this. We have prayed. I have fasted so much and prayed so much and tried every kind of doctor. And we haven't seen significant relief. In fact, many ways, things get worse. And God has never whispered into my ear, Doug, the reason why Rebecca's been sick for so long is this. Or the reason why you're still so impatient with her and you hate yourself for it afterwards, is this. God has never whispered that in my ear. I wish he would, honestly. But if I can see the world through the lens of Scripture and the lens of the cross and the resurrection and the coming judgment, the coming glorification of God at the second coming and so on, and the glorification of his people, then I keep going. I don't give up. I don't know the details. You see, I don't know why, but I know the one who knows why. That makes all the difference. When you see a physician, that physician is, has trained for years and years and has had all kinds of experience, let's say, with a particular problem. 
you know very little about that, but you entrust yourself to the dentist, and they have some very nasty equipment, you know. I have a dentist friend here. You entrust yourself to someone with sharp objects and strange metals and clamps, and they talk funny language. You entrust yourself to them, not because you understand dentistry, but because you know that this person is a dentist and he or she is trustworthy. You see, we can apply that to God. We can know God. There's evidence for the existence and character of God through the universe, through history, through the scripture, the achievements, the claims and the credentials of Jesus. We can know God. However, within that knowledge, there are opacities. There are things that are hard to know or perhaps in this life impossible to know. So let me finish up by talking about knowledge, mystery, and engagement. How do we then, with this biblical perspective, not atheism, not reincarnation, not Islam, how do we deal with this problem of evil? I said that there are mysteries, but mysteries are not absurdities. And moreover, we should not be ignorance mongers. Sadly, there are some people in the church today I'll name two, Rob Bell and Love Wins and Donald Miller and Blue Like Jazz, who are irresponsible in their invocation of mystery. They give you no apologetics. They give you no sound reasons to make the claim that you know God. Rather, they hawk mysteries, enigmas, paradoxes, and tensions. But without a foundation, this is terribly irresponsible. For example, in Blue Like Jazz... Page 103, Donald Miller says, flippantly, who knows anything anyway? My God, a Christian saying that? Who knows anything anyway? When the very existence of God is to make himself known and worshipped and loved, or the existence of God manifests itself in judgment against those who hate God, and you have someone saying, who knows anything anyway? All right, calm down. Mike didn't want me to do this, but I'm up here. Rob Bell, Love Wins. This book advances, and I'll be quick with this, perhaps. <laughs> Rob Bell in Love Wins, a multi-bestseller, multi-probably-million bestseller, advances three theses. Everyone is saved. No one goes to hell. Everyone is not saved. Some people go to hell. And third, we have no idea whether everyone is saved or not. That's what the book gives you. So I want to say to Rob Bell, Rob, what the hell are you talking about? You have one proposition that contradicts another proposition, A and non-A, and then you have a third proposition that says, we don't know whether one or two is true. And this is all you're left with in the book. Sadly, this approach takes away knowledge. And Jesus had some strong words about people that took away the key of knowledge. Now, we have good reason to believe that Christianity is objectively true and subjectively compelling. I have spent my entire adult life pursuing that end. I am not the greatest philosopher, the greatest apologist, but I can tell you this. In some ways, I've tried to disprove Christianity for the last 35 years because I've read the works of atheists and Muslims and New Agers and agnostics and those that think that Darwinism has defeated Christianity, and I've not found them to be compelling. And it's not because I have ignored them. I've written 11 books on these things, 
And there are people way smarter than I am who can do a better job than I can. William Lane Craig, J.P. Moreland, people like that. I only want to believe this if it's true. I want to know the way the world is. But still, the smartest, best Christian on earth is still going to have mysteries they have to embrace, they have to deal with. Let me give you a couple passages on this. I hope this will be helpful in dealing with your own suffering and your own struggles. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. That is, God revealed himself in the covenant to his people Israel, and he reveals himself in the subsequent covenants as he manifests his kingdom and his mission in the world. But there are still things that for his own sovereignly good purposes, God conceals. God reveals much, but he conceals as well for his own reasons. Or think of this. From Romans 11, 33 through 36, Paul has given us the most systematic, detailed account of Christian doctrine in the entire Bible, Romans 1 through 11. And the end of it, this is what he says. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him, repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So even Paul the recipient and conveyor of such knowledge of God realizes there are areas that we do not understand, opacities we can't see into. And in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, we see through a glass darkly, and we know in part, but we do see and we can know some things. So we have some understanding, some knowledge of God to help us with why bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. And we know the worst thing happened to the best person, Christ, and he rose from the dead and will judge and restore the universe on that basis. So we have some understanding. Within that framework of understanding and knowledge, there are mysteries. But we have enough understanding that we can live with the mystery and not have it turn into an absurdity that crushes the life out of us. Further, how do we deal with evil? We resist evil and we also lament the fact of evil. The Christian view does not say, God's in control, therefore do nothing. God is good, God is all-powerful, it'll all work out, so your life does not matter. No. God has set things up such that human beings count. You make waves that go out into eternity. And God has set up his kingdom such that his people make an eternal difference in peoples, in individual people, in families, in cities, in nations, and globally. So we, in the name of God, want to see shalom restored. We want to see God's kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we oppose evil in the name of God because God created a good world. The world turned against God. So we don't just acquiesce to evil. In the name of God, we fight it. We fight evil in ourselves. I think of this passage from 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? 
run in such a way as to get the prize, is Paul speaking. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So part of living in a good world gone wrong, where good happens to evil people and evil happens to good people, is fighting the evil in ourselves through the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing the Scripture, knowing what a godly life is, and coming to Christ daily, hourly, minute by minute, second by second, nanosecond by nanosecond, a life of dependence on Christ to manifest His goodness and to manifest His kingdom. So Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Those are the conditions for following him. You can't do it according to your own rules. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Follow me into the restoration of the universe. Follow me into the manifestation of the knowledge of God in your world. Follow me into this great adventure of Christian existence. But you have to fight the evil in yourself. You need to identify it. Confess your sin to God. Live an open life before God. And of course, we need to fight evil in the world. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all will be worked out. As we seek righteousness in families, in nations, in politics, in every area of life, in the arts, there is evil to fight. There is ugliness to fight. Think of the evils of poverty, slavery, disease, false religion, false philosophies. Isaiah 1 tells us, verse 17, Learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the cause of the widow. There's a lot of work to do in a broken world. No one who follows Christ has any reason ever to be bored. No matter what your condition, you can do something in the name of God and the strength of God. You can pray, you can give, you can work, you can create you can befriend people. You can teach. You can preach. You can write. You can be an architect. You can be a dentist. You can be part of this great project of reclamation called the kingdom of God. Does anyone want to do that? Are you still there? You are there. I can see you. No one has fallen asleep yet. I want to be a part of this. I don't want to live a meaningless, trivial pursuit life. There's too much to do. There's too much evil to fight and there's too much good to bring into the world through the agency of the Holy Spirit. So we fight the evil in ourselves through the power of God, according to the Word of God. We fight the evils out there in the world. There are many of them, some of them even systematic. They're tough to pin down and work with and overcome. We also have to realize we have a literal spiritual enemy, the devil. So we have to do spiritual warfare. So James says, resist the devil, he will flee from you, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. That's part of the struggle of living in a world gone wrong. We have to deal with the devil. We have to deal with demons. It comes with the territory. As Luther said, Satan is very upset when someone goes from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, and he can't take that person's salvation away, but he can try to make them as miserable as possible. So you are in a battle with the enemy if you are part of this reclamation project of the kingdom of God. You can't get out of it. You either fight wisely or get beat up. I advise fighting wisely. I know from some experience. Lastly, we 
in this broken world where good things happen to bad people, bad things happen to good people, should lament the losses that can't be rectified, the losses that seem permanent, the death of a child, let's say, or the destruction of a marriage that will not be healed. Lament is a profound way of showing love and concern to those who are suffering horribly. We weep with those who weep. We fight. And I also want to emphasize fighting when it comes to physical health. Because Scripture says that God is a God of signs and wonders. God heals the sick. God raises the dead. We should pray and fast that people who have profound physical problems are healed. And I have for my wife and I have for others. And I'm not going to stop. I don't seem to have a great gift of healing, but I have a real heart for people who have profound physical problems. So I continue to fight and pray and hope and ask, right? But sometimes we go down fighting. Sometimes we fail. The person dies. The person does not get better. So we lament. And we say, Lord, how long? Lord, I don't understand. It's better to be angry with God than to be indifferent towards God. The psalmists are often angry with God. And they don't always resolve the anger in the psalm. In fact, Psalm 39 ends with David saying, God, leave me alone so my life will go better. You look it up. That's my paraphrase. But all the translations I've seen say, God, I can't take it anymore. That's David, a man after God's own heart. So how do we deal with evil in the world, injustice? We have some understanding. The Christian worldview gives meaning to life, meaning to goodness, meaning to evil. It's not without purpose. God has a purpose for these things, even if we don't know it. But we can have confidence in this because of God's character as making himself known more than anything through the incarnation. He, Christ, has made the Father known. His life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. We want to see the world through the prism of Christ. And that gives us hope and encouragement. And we have understanding. It is not blind faith. By any means, there's reason to believe it. There's also reason to know that we are ignorant of some things. But that mystery does not become an absurdity if it is within the framework of knowledge, the knowledge of God. Furthermore, we fight, we resist evil. We're incensed at genocide. We're incensed by rape. We're incensed by poverty and homelessness. We're incensed by hideous ugliness in the arts and so on. Why? The world is good. God created it good. It's been defaced by rebellious creatures. And we are one of those. Each one of us is one of those rebellious creatures. So we fight. We fight the evil in ourselves. And the only reason we can do that, because Christ has won that battle for us through his crucifixion and resurrection. And we fight the evil in the world. We try to restore shalom, restore goodness. And then we also have a spiritual enemy, the devil and demons. And we fight them as well by putting on the full armor of God and by being filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me come back to the preacher of Ecclesiastes. I quoted him twice some time ago. This is how the book of Ecclesiastes ends. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing whether it is good or evil. That is the resolution. Now, we know more than what the writer of Ecclesiastes knew because he came before Christ. He knew truth. He was a wise man. 
but we can know the bigger picture and the larger story. Good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people in order, in the final analysis, that God would make himself known as the one true God in redemption and judgment and that he would receive proper worship through all of this. Let's conclude with prayer and then I will turn it over to whoever is in charge of the end of the service. Oh Lord, we are so grateful that you have had mercy upon us and shown your grace to reveal knowledge to us about the origin of the universe, the fall, redemption, and consummation. Lord, we are grateful you have not left us in the dark, but you have manifested your goodness through your deeds, through your acts, through your words. Now, Lord, fill us with knowledge, fill us with virtue, fill us with the Holy Spirit of truth and wisdom and courage and power to be agents of good in this world. Lord, we cannot do it in our own strength by our own ability. It is only through your transcendent goodness and wisdom, the wisdom that comes from above, that we can accomplish anything of lasting worth. So I pray, Lord, for my brothers and sisters that you would bring comfort, bring the balm of Gilead to those areas of suffering, bring meaning, Lord, bring hope, bring psychological, spiritual, physical, relational healing to my brothers and sisters. May we be agents of healing. And if anyone's here tonight who does not know Christ as Lord and Savior, I pray, Holy Spirit, you would convict them, convince them of their need for Christ, their status as needy people, sinful people who need to be forgiven and restored. We pray all this in the strong and mighty and glorious name of Jesus Christ. God's people said, Amen.